Chapter 18 of Hans Brinker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Hans Brinker, or The Silver Skates, by Mary Mapes Dodge. Chapter 18 Friends in Need. In the meantime, the other boys were listening to Peter's account of an incident which had occurred long ago, Sir Thomas Carr's tour through Holland, in a part of the city where stood an ancient castle, whose lord had tyrannized over the burghers of the town to such an extent that they surrounded his castle and laid siege to it. Just at the last extremity, when the haughty lord felt that he could hold out no longer, and was prepared to sell his life as dearly as possible, his lady appeared on the ramparts and offered to surrender everything, provided she was permitted to bring out, and retain, as much of her most precious household goods as she could carry upon her back. The promise was given, and the lady came forth from the gateway, bearing her husband upon her shoulders. The burghers' pledge preserved him from the fury of the troops, but left them free to wreak their vengeance upon the castle." "'Do you believe that story, Captain Peter?' asked Carl in an incredulous tone. "'Of course I do. It is historical. Why should I doubt it?' "'Simply because no woman could do it, and if she could, she wouldn't. That is my opinion.' "'And I believe that there are many who would. That is, to save those they really cared for,' said Ludwig." Jacob, who in spite of his fat and sleepiness was of rather a sentimental turn, had listened with deep interest. "'That is right, little fellow,' he said, nodding his head approvingly. "'I believe every word of it. I shall never marry a woman who would not be glad to do as much for me.' "'Heaven help her!' cried Carl, turning to gaze at the speaker. "'Why, poot, three men couldn't do it!' "'Perhaps not,' said Jacob quietly, feeling that he had asked rather too much of the future Mrs. Poot. "'But she must be willing, that is all.' "'Aye,' responded Peter's cheery voice, "'willing heart makes nimble foot, and who knows, but it may make strong arms also.' "'Pete,' asked Ludwig, changing the subject, "'did you tell me last night that the painter Wowaman was born in Harlem?' "'Yes.' and Jacob Rostal and Berchem, too. I like Berchem, as he was always good-natured. They say he always sang while he painted, and though he died nearly two hundred years ago, there are traditions still afloat concerning his pleasant laugh. He was a great painter, and he had a wife as cross as Xantippe. They balanced each other finely, said Ludwig. He was kind, and she was cross. But, Peter, before I forget it, wasn't that picture of St. Hubert and the horse painted by Wowaman? You remember? Father showed us an engraving from it last night. Yes, indeed. There is a story connected with that picture. Tell us! cried two or three, drawing closer to Peter as they skated on. Wowaman, began the captain oratorically, was born in 1620, just four years before Berchem. He was a master of his art, and especially excelled in painting horses. Strange as it may seem, people were so long finding out his merits that, 
Even after he had arrived at the height of his excellence, he was obliged to sell his pictures for very paltry prices. The poor artist became completely discouraged, and worst of all, was over head and ears in debt. One day he was talking over his troubles with his father confessor, who was one of the few who recognized his genius. The priest determined to assist him, and accordingly lent him six hundred guilders, advising him at the same time to demand a better price for his pictures. Wawamon did so, and in the meantime paid his debts. Matters brightened with him at once. Everybody appreciated the great artist who painted such costly pictures. He grew rich. The six hundred guilders were returned, and in gratitude Wawamon sent also a work which he had painted, representing his benefactor as St. Hubert kneeling before his horse, the very picture, Ludwig, of which we were speaking last night. "'So, so!' exclaimed Ludwig, with deep interest. "'I must take another look at the engraving as soon as we get home.' At that same hour, while Ben was skating with his companions beside the Holland Dyke, Robbie and Jenny stood in their pretty English schoolhouse, ready to join in the duties of their reading class. "'Commence! Master Robert Dobbs,' said the teacher. "'Page 242. Now, sir, mind every stop.' And Robbie, in a quick childish voice, roared forth at schoolroom pitch, "'Lesson 62. The Hero of Harlem. Many years ago there lived in Harlem one of the principal cities of Holland, a sunny-haired boy of gentle disposition.' His father was a sluicer, that is, a man whose business it was to open and close the sluices, or large oaken gates, that are placed at regular distances across the entrances of the canals, to regulate the amount of water that shall flow into them. The sluicer raises the gates more or less according to the quantity of water required, and closes them carefully at night in order to avoid all possible danger of an oversupply running into the canal, or the water would soon overflow it and inundate the surrounding country. As a great portion of Holland is lower than the level of the sea, the waters are kept from flooding the land only by means of strong dikes, or barriers, and by means of these sluices, which are often strained to the utmost by the pressure of the rising tides. Even the little children in Holland know that constant watchfulness is required to keep the rivers and ocean from overwhelming the country, and that a moment's neglect of the sluicer's duty may bring ruin and death to all. "'Very good,' said the teacher. "'Now, Susan!' One lovely autumn afternoon, when the boy was about eight years old, he obtained his parents' consent to carry some cakes to a blind man who lived out in the country on the other side of the dyke. The little fellow started on his errand with a light heart, and having spent an hour with his grateful old friend, he bade him farewell, and started on his homeward walk. Trudging stoutly along the canal, he noticed how the autumn rains had swollen the waters. Even while humming his careless, childish song, he thought of his father's brave old gates, and felt glad of their strength, for, thought he, if they gave way, where would father and mother be? These pretty fields would all be covered with the angry waters. Father always calls them the angry waters. I suppose he thinks they are mad at him for keeping them out so long. 
and with these thoughts just flitting across his brain, the little fellow stooped to pick the pretty flowers that grew along his way. Sometimes he stopped to throw some feathery seed-ball in the air, and watch it as it floated away. Sometimes he listened to the stealthy rustling of a rabbit, speeding through the grass. But oftener he smiled as he recalled the happy light he had seen arise on the weary, listening face of his blind old friend. "'Now, Henry,' said the teacher, nodding to the next little reader. Suddenly the boy looked around him in dismay. He had not noticed that the sun was setting. Now he saw that his long shadow on the grass had vanished. It was growing dark. He was still some distance from home, and in a lonely ravine, where even the blue flowers had turned to grey. He quickened his footsteps, and, with a beating heart, recalled many a nursery tale of children's belated and dreary forest. Just as he was bracing himself for a run, he was startled by the sound of trickling water. Whence did it come? He looked up, and saw a small hole in the dike, through which a tiny stream was flowing. Any child in Holland will shudder at the thought of a leak in the dike. The boy understood the danger at a glance. That little hole, if the water were allowed to trickle through, would soon be a large one, and a terrible inundation would be the result. Quick as a flash he saw his duty. Throwing away his flowers, the boy clambered up the heights until he reached the hole. His chubby little finger was thrust in almost before he knew it. The flowing was stopped. Ah! he thought, with a chuckle of boyish delight, the angry waters must stay back now. Harlem shall not be drowned while I am here. This was all very well at first, but the night was falling rapidly. Chill vapours filled the air. Our little hero began to tremble with cold and dread. He shouted loudly. He screamed, Come here! Come here! But no one came. The cold grew more intense. A numbness, commencing in the tired little finger, crept over his hand and arm, and soon his whole body was filled with pain. He shouted again, Will no one come? Mother! Mother! Alas, his mother, good practical soul, had already locked the doors and had fully resolved to scold him on the morrow for spending the night with blind Jansen without her permission. He tried to whistle. Perhaps some straggling boy might heed the signal, but his teeth chattered so it was impossible. Then he called on God for help, and the answer came, through a holy resolution, I will stay here till morning. Now, Jenny Dobbs, said the teacher. Jenny's eyes were glistening, but she took a long breath and commenced. The midnight moon looked down upon that small, solitary form, sitting upon a stone, halfway up the dike. His head was bent, but he was not asleep, for every now and then one restless hand rubbed feebly the outstretched arm that seemed fastened to the dike, and often the pale, tearful face turned quickly at some real or fancied sounds. How can we know the sufferings of that long and fearful watch? What falterings of purpose? What childish terrors came over the boy as he thought of the warm little bed at home, of his parents, his brothers and sisters? 
then looked into the cold, dreary night. If he drew away that tiny finger, the angry waters, grown angrier still, would rush forth, and never stop until they had swept over the town. No, he would hold it there till daylight, if he lived. He was not very sure of living. What did this strange buzzing mean? And then the knives that seemed pricking and piercing him from head to foot? He was not certain now that he could draw his finger away, even if he wished to. At daybreak a clergyman, returning from the bedside of a sick parishioner, thought he heard groans as he walked along on the top of the dike. Bending, he saw, far down on the side, a child apparently writhing with pain. "'In the name of wonder, boy!' he exclaimed. "'What are you doing there?' "'I am keeping the water from running out,' was the simple answer of the little hero. "'Tell them to come quick.' "'It is needless to add that they did come quickly, and that—' "'Jenny Dobbs,' said the teacher, rather impatiently, "'if you cannot control your feelings so as to read distinctly, we will wait until you recover yourself.' "'Yes, sir,' said Jenny, quite startled. It was strange, but at that very moment Ben, far over the sea, was saying to Lumbert, "'The noble little fellow! I have frequently met with an account of the incident, but I never knew, till now, that it was really true.' "'True! Of course it is,' said Lumbert. "'I have given you the story just as Mother told it to me years ago.' Why, there is not a child in Holland who does not know it. And, Ben, you may not think so, but that little boy represents the spirit of the whole country. Not a leak can show itself anywhere, either in its politics, honor, or public safety, that a million fingers are not ready to stop it at any cost. Whew! cried Master Ben. Big talk in that. It's true talk anyway, rejoined Lumbert so very quietly that Ben wisely resolved to make no further comment. End of chapter.